You never get over it. Grief is a lifelong journey, but when you're willing to enter that journey and acknowledge its place in your life, it stops becoming something that necessarily always fills the room. I'm just so grateful that I had the honor of carrying them for the time that I did and that they changed my life. Welcome, everybody. This is Simon Gilbo with Inspired. I'm really excited to be back with another fantastic guest. Basically, if you're new to us, Inspired is all about meeting a whole bunch of my mates and contacts from all sorts of different walks of life. And it involves uh, stories, hearing how they've journeyed, how their faith has pulled them through sometimes. It's uh, authentic sharing. It's the highs, the lows. And uh, yeah, I've got no doubt you're going to be absolutely moved and inspired this week because we've got a fantastic guest called Zoe Clark Coates. Welcome, Zoe. Thank you very much. It's an honour to be on yeah. your podcast. Oh, brilliant to have you. So Zoe and I were both at Spring Harvest a few months ago and I've heard some of her story. Yeah, I mean, it, it touches me because I think as you hear her story, you will either have experienced some of what she's been through or you'll, you'll know someone who's, who's close to you who's been through it as well because she lost um, five babies and, uh, and then basically was the founder of Mariposa Trust, which some might know under the emblem of saying goodbye with her husband, Andy, all the way doing this together. And it's a charity that's become, uh, you know, one of the leading support charities reaching over 50,000 people a week across the world. She's, uh, I suppose you're a, a grief expert. That's one of the things you'd say mm-hmm. you were. She was appointed by the Secretary of State for Health to co-chair the National Review of Baby Loss across the NHS and, and the UK. She's written a whole bunch of books that have sold really well. She's got her own talk show called Soul Tears. Uh, she does loads of media stuff. And uh, anyway, let's get let's get into that. But the other day when we were talking, Zoe, you, you told me the incredible story right from your conception. It's been amazing, hasn't it? So, so kick us off with that. Yeah, so people will often ask me when I became a Christian. Mm-hmm. And I always feel I need to start prior to that, because when I was growing safely, tucked away in my mum's womb, things started to go wrong. Mm -hmm. And um, my mum and dad didn't really have a faith. My mum had grown up being taken to church for, you know, the traditional occasions, Easter, Christmas and whatnot. My dad hadn't been raised in a faith background at all either. And um, it was during that pregnancy that things started to go wrong. So my mum had started experiencing problems and had gone to the hospital and were quickly told to her that things had gone very wrong and she needed to abort me. Mm -hmm. And mum just knew that wasn't something she could do. And she refused and said, I'm just not going to do it. And they said, well, to save your life, you need to abort, but your baby doesn't have any chance of survival. But mum was really convinced that that was something she couldn't and wouldn't even entertain and said, what other options are there? Mm -hmm. And the hospital told her, there's no other option. The only thing we can suggest you do is go to the church because what you need is a miracle. And so mum took that, okay, I'll take that information. And that's exactly what she did. And she went to the church where she was always taken at Christmas, Easter, etc. And the vicar there was called Father Parker. And she went to him and said, this is what the hospital have told me. And he said, okay, let's pray. And he prayed over her bump and prayed that I would survive. And things 
throughout that pregnancy would often quickly change. And mom would say that she would go into the bathroom and would start bleeding. But within hours, there'd be a knock on the front door and Father Parker would be standing there and say, I've been sent by God to pray for you. Amen. And um, he'd lay hands on her again and pray. And I was obviously kept safe and sound in there because I was delivered safely. And the hospital said I was a miracle child. I just shouldn't have survived, but I did. So obviously that made mom aware that there was something bigger out there. This Mm. wasn't just something that you know, that you can just call upon when you need it. There was actually a God there. There was realness behind Mm. um, all of these prayers, but she still didn't become what you'd now know as a born again Christian. And um, she said her next real encounter was she went to christen me and she heard from God that she shouldn't christen me, that she had to just dedicate me back to God. Hmm. And so again, she said to Father Parker, I know what you normally do in the church is christen, but I just don't feel that's right. I really feel I've heard from God and what I'm meant to be doing is dedicating her, not christening her. And they said, okay, we'll do that. And um, through all of that, I guess mum knew that there was a God. She'd heard God's voice, but she still hadn't made that commitment Mm. and it wasn't until I was about five years old she said that she was led by some family members to Christ mom and dad together and apparently I don't even remember this at all but they were sitting in the lounge reading the bible they'd just become Christians and they didn't understand what they were reading but apparently I just got up and ran out the room sobbing and crying and mom ran after me and went to the bedroom and found me there and she said, what's, what's the matter? Why are you crying? And, and apparently I then explained exactly what um, they were confused about in the Bible and gave Love them it. real insight into it, which just blew them away. And at that point I said, I want to be a Christian too and gave my life to Christ. Wow. So that's my journey to becoming a Christian, even though I don't really remember it. Yeah, extraordinary. Uh, Father Parker, what a legend. Um, Absolutely. But also Zoe, your name, correct me if I'm wrong here. Um, I mean, again, your father wasn't yet a follower of Jesus, so, but it was no. almost like Zechariah style in the Bible. You're going to have another name. And he said, no, her name's going to be Zoe. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So I was meant to be called Christian, which is a funny name for a girl. But apparently that was going to be my name, whether I was a boy or a girl. And he just knew I had to be called Zoe. And um, they didn't know the significance of that. But now we all know that the meaning of the name Zoe is life. And that's exactly what was spoken over me. And then became my call really to speak life into situations and help people refine their life after they've lost it through loss. Yeah, amazing. So from sort of the age of five or six, that's when your parents meet Jesus, you meet Jesus. Mm -hmm. Does that make it for a smooth um, teenage journey? Um, And do you, you, do you carry on being able to exposit the Bible for elders like you're doing (laughs) at that point? I don't and didn't. Um, I think that was a one-off. Teenage years weren't easy. They were hard, but I kept my faith through everything that I journeyed. And um, there was, a, I think, a period of time around 17 where I went through that 
natural questioning, is my faith still my own or is my faith what it is just because I've got parents who are passionate Christians. Mm -hmm. But I could never turn around and say I didn't believe in Jesus. And even in my questioning years or months, I always prayed. I could never deny what I'd personally known and always felt that touch of heavenly blessing on my life and the fact that things weren't easy, but I always felt God was journeying with me. And so absolutely, I hung on to my faith all the way through my teenage years, apart from those months or maybe a year of questioning. But I think that was kind of important because I needed to know that my faith was truly mine and went really deep. Mm. And then quite early, uh, husband Andy comes on yeah. the scene. Um, you, you have a few decades, don't you, of, of business and charity sector experience. How much do you yeah. want to share on that one? Yeah, so me and Andy met when we were around 18, we met. And um, we're friends for a few years and um, went on a drink for a drink one night that was definitely not a date. It was just a friend thing. (laughs) And um, I remember looking at him and thinking, oh my goodness, I'm going to marry you. Mm. And he said he had exactly the same, where he was all for it. I was absolutely commitment phobic and ran in the opposite (laughs) direction. I was like, no, I can't do this. But we ended up saying that night, let's start dating. And and every night, actually, we'd go out, we'd see each other every day. And every evening it would end with me saying, I'm really sorry, I just can't do this anymore. Um, I'm just not the relationship type like this. I just need to end it. And he'd go, okay, okay, see you tomorrow. And the next day he would just turn up again. Brilliant. And this this went on for a few weeks. And I remember holding a dinner party and um, inviting him. And across that dinner, I remember thinking, I'm falling in love with you and um, being really scared about it. And I still never said it. And um, six weeks later, we were out one afternoon and he said, what would you say if I asked you to marry me? Wow. And I said, I'd say absolutely no way. <laughs> um, why would you ever ask me that? And he went, oh, okay, okay. <laughs> and that night we went out for dinner and over dinner he said, Zoe, would you? And I just burst out laughing. I said, just stop right there. You are not continuing that question. And we just carried on dinner like nothing could even happened. And, and then the next course came and he did exactly the same. And then by dessert, he said, I'm going to try and ask you this for one final time this evening. And he just said it really fast. And he said, Zoe Clark, will you marry me? And I turned to him and I said, Andy, I've not even told you I love you yet. Why are you asking me this? And he said, because I love you enough to never need to hear you say it back to me. Mm, And um, I said, oh my goodness, that's the sort of love I need in my life. And absolutely, I love you too. And I will marry you. Mm. Yeah. So within six weeks, we were engaged. And six months later, we walked down the aisle and got married. Wow, great story. Hi folks, most of you know this podcast comes out under the auspices of Great Lakes Outreach, which works in Burundi, according to IMF figures recently, still the hungriest and poorest country in the world. Now we do lots of beautiful things. I love the story recently of a leader who resisted going into prostitution and had a pair of scissors, did some hairdressing, could hardly make ends meet, but with a seven pound loan, that's like eight and a half dollars, she was able to buy a few 
hair products, which enabled her to just get a higher margin on her hairdressing. And she has now paid back that loan. She managed to buy a pig, and more recently, on the back of paying back the loan, we've given her a bigger loan, and she's rented premises as a proper hair salon. I love that. Seven pounds stopped her going to prostitution. The whole community now honors her as a woman of stature for not having gone down that path. Seven pounds, eight and a half dollars, literal game changer. We got lots of those stories. If you wanted to support our work out there, if you're loving the podcast, as many of you are, then you could do just give whatever a month to be beautiful. That's greatlakesoutreach.org forward slash inspired. Greatlakesoutreach.org forward slash inspired. Any sum would be beautiful. Anyway, let's get back to the podcast. So you get married, you know, you often think it's all going to be sweetness and light, don't you, at the start? And clearly you've had a a bumpy, challenging road. But I think the first number of years, you you delayed trying to have kids for over a decade, didn't you? Those are busy, frenetic, business, career-orientated years, were they? They were, but we were and are soulmates and absolutely loved just being together. And anything that we did together was joy-filled and... I think that helped make the decision to wait to try for children because we just loved being with one another and felt really complete as a family unit. Um, Started a company that was really successful, an international events PR marketing company. Our clients were people like Bupa, Coca-Cola, et cetera. And Mm -hmm. we were running events and project management for them. And um, we're just loving life, traveling the world, doing lots of international work. And so that's part of why we delayed having children, because one, we presumed having children would just be easy and we wouldn't have any issues at all. But also because we were just living life so much together. Mm -hmm. And um, I always thought that biological clock was a myth that you can start to hear this ticking clock. But actually, I can absolutely state it's true because overnight I suddenly had this overwhelming desire that we needed to have children and shared it with Andy and he felt exactly the same but we'd been married for over 10 years by that point and um, just said well this is how I'm feeling what are you feeling he said he felt the same so we decided to try to have children and as I said I think we just believed it would be easy and we wouldn't have a problem. Um, To go a bit back on that, I'd actually trained as a counsellor before ever going into the corporate world. My mum's a therapist and I'd grown up with the language surrounding psychotherapy, etc. was just commonplace at home. And so it felt like a natural thing for me to train in. So after school, etc., that's what I went in and trained in. Mm-hmm. And so never intending to really use it professionally, but wanting to have those skills under my hat, so to speak. And actually, I used all those skills in business all of the time. So mm-hmm. it was really effective. Um, but that's kind of an important piece to this puzzle. Went into the corporate world, loved doing what we were doing, decided to have children. And that's kind of where our lost journey began because it didn't just happen easily. Um, We tragically lost our first baby. Mm -hmm. 
And we really believed that that was a one-off and we didn't really discuss it openly. We didn't tell people what we'd gone through. We decided to very much deal with it privately, didn't discuss it. Um, I kind of refused to be one of those statistics and I felt like by not publicly talking about it or acknowledging it meant we wouldn't be one of the many when we quickly learned that sadly one in four people lose a baby and... I just felt like if we didn't acknowledge it, that we wouldn't be part of that statistic. Mm. And ironically, being a grief specialist, which I was, I knew the process of loss and grief and I knew talking about it was actually the really helpful and wise thing to do, but chose to do the opposite. And we just decided to try again. And this pregnancy, we were really blessed to get pregnant. I was in bed one evening and I heard a voice in my ear saying, get out of bed and do a pregnancy test, you're pregnant. And I was like, no way, no way, is that true? And um, decided to be obedient, get out of bed, do a pregnancy test. And I was pregnant and I just couldn't believe it. It felt, I don't know, after losing the first baby, it felt really miraculous and Mm. really different actually. I think because of really hearing from God that I was pregnant, it felt different. Mm. And the pregnancy felt kind of different as well. And everything was going along perfectly. I'd been for scans, seeing our daughter growing, everything was. And then on one Friday afternoon, I suddenly started to bleed, but Mm. it was only slight. And I'd actually been warned that that might happen on one of my scans because they'd said that they could see a bit of blood in my womb. And so if I ever did bleed, to not overly panic. And um, even hearing that, you still panic. Mm. Anybody who's pregnant will tell you the sight of blood just is really horrific. It's really terrifying. And even having that warning didn't help. So we managed to find a clinic who could scan me within a few hours, which was really great. And we darted over to that clinic and kind of sitting in the waiting room in pretty much silence thinking, is our world about to change again? But it didn't. We went in for the scan and there was our daughter waving happily on the screen and Mm -hmm. everything was brilliant. And it was really reassuring. But if you ever have a bleeding pregnancy, they don't ever tell you to just go away and everything's perfect. They tell Mm. you everything's great now. That doesn't mean everything will be okay tomorrow. Um, But you kind of, you hear that all of the time. And so part of your brain is extremely, totally hopeful and um, positive. But then the other half is thinking, oh, I hope things don't suddenly go a different direction. But Mm. we were reassured enough and The next day, all the bleeding had stopped and we were running this big event actually on an evening for all of our friends and neighbours, et cetera, because it was coming up to Christmas. And suddenly I had this massive bleed. Mm. And I remember being in the bathroom, just rocking on the bathroom floor, really having a sense that our daughter had just died Mm. and begging God to save her and just praying over my stomach and reminding God that he told me she was there. And that's how I discovered I was pregnant and praying for a miracle that all would be well. And we ended up going to the hospital that night 
and we were met with really poor care and really uncompassionate staff. It wasn't even busy. It was so quiet. I think there may have been one other person in A&E. But they were just really um, dismissive. They said, well, I was still pregnant. Of course, I was still pregnant. Why would anything have changed? I'd had a scan the day before. Why would anything be different today? And to just ignore the bleeding. And they booked me in for a scan a week, a week later. And I just knew I couldn't wait that long. We went home. Um, That was a Saturday. The Sunday thing, the bleeding had virtually stopped and I started to feel a bit more hopeful, even though I'd had this overriding sense that she had died. We started leaving um, messages on private clinics, ants machines, just begging for them to see me on Monday morning. And Monday morning came about and our phone rang really early saying, we've got a scanning appointment available. If you can just get over to the clinic immediately, we'll scan you. So we kind of leapt in the car, drove over to this clinic. And as soon as we went um, into the room, it felt really different because it was a really upmarket private scanning clinic. So instead of just having a little screen, there was a massive screen opposite on the wall. And um, the midwife started scanning me and instantly we could see our daughter on the screen. So Mm. we just issued like this massive sigh of relief, both me and Andy. She was really still, but as babies are when they're asleep anyway, but the midwife didn't really speak at all. And eventually she just said, I'm really, really sorry, Mm. Um, but her heart stopped beating. And Mm. the bottom just opened in our world and I felt like we were just falling through a trap door and it felt really surreal. It felt like a real out-of-body experience. I remember screaming and crying and, and we were quickly put into another room where we were away from all of the patients to kind of absorb the news. And I remember phoning my mum and dad who were just beside themselves and said they'd leap in the car. They live in Devon and would get to where we were as quickly as they could. And I begged for another scan and I was given another scan. A consultant then came and did the scan and said, I'm really sorry. The first scan was correct. She has died and um, we don't know why and probably Mm -hmm. won't ever know why. and didn't give us much information really. We were told we could deliver her naturally or we could go down the medical route. And the thought of just going to a hospital to deliver her felt really wrong. And so we we decided to go home and just wait for things to start naturally. Mm. And it actually took a week before I went into labor. And that week was so dark and Mm. so hopeless and so terrifying. And I would spend hours just sobbing hysterically and then would just feel numb. And I remember looking out of our kitchen window, seeing all these Christmas lights twinkling around all the neighborhood and around all our neighbors' houses. And, and that feeling like such a hopeful and beautiful thing, but yet here we were in this desolate valley of hopelessness But that whole week, I just kept praying over my stomach that she'd come back to life. And we'd go for another scan, which we needed to do a few days later, which is standard practice. And and they would tell me the good news. So until we'd gone for that, I was still in a 
95% absolute devastation and 5% really believing that a miracle could happen. Mm. And, um, and it didn't happen. Yeah, a week to the day we delivered her. And it was terrifying. I'd like to say it was beautiful. Some people's stories do have an amount of real beauty and a cherished time when you're getting to deliver your child. But for me, there was none of that. I felt really robbed of a promise and mm. just so broken. And I honestly didn't know if I'd ever recover. Mm. And in those weeks after we kind of retreated into a bubble, we felt like we didn't want to make other people sad and um, share our pain. It's really interesting, actually, when you go through baby loss, that you start to feel responsible for other people's pain. Mm. The fact that they wouldn't be experiencing this heartache if you hadn't tried for a child and mm. then lost a child. So you kind of feel responsible for their pain. So even seeing their pain is so agonizing because you want to rescue them from it and mm. you feel like you've caused it. And and it was really horrible. I remember phoning the family and saying, we decided we won't come to Devon for Christmas. We're just going to be on our own. And the family going, no, absolutely not. And we went, but we're going to ruin all of your Christmases. How can we come? And they were like, no, you come. Mm. And we'll just all sit and weep. Yeah. And it was such a beautiful thing. And it was just a real permission to show up. And we didn't have to show up fake. Yeah. We could just show up and be real. Mm. It was really beautiful. It was actually... In those weeks surrounding Christmas, because I remember we were driving back from Devon and we were sitting in the car and I was listening to a song on the stereo, which was Tim Hughes' song, When the Tears Fall. Mm. And I remember in those moments feeling like I'd left my body and had almost been taken into heaven. And I remember feeling so connected with heaven and Jesus. Mm -hmm. It was one of the most beautiful heavenly moments I've ever experienced where I remember thinking in that moment, I wouldn't change anything I've gone through for those seconds of encounter. Mm -hmm. It's so hard to explain, but it was so surreal and so beautiful and I remember thinking everything I've gone through has given me this access to something so far removed from me. Yeah. And I remember thinking I wouldn't change anything I've gone through because that moment was so utterly beautiful. And I share that because it was so special, but also it didn't stay. I remember hours later thinking, I can't believe I've gone through this. And I, if only mm. we'd got a different outcome. So it didn't remain that feeling. But I remember in that moment feeling so connected to heaven. Mm. It was utterly beautiful. And knowing that's what the Bible means by his closest to those who mourn yeah. and grieve, because it really did feel like I'd been given this access to a heavenly encounter that I'd have never, ever been given mm. if I hadn't gone through the loss that I had. Um, so a while after that, we decided to try again. 
and tragically then lost that third baby. And after that, I didn't know whether I'd have the strength to carry on trying. Yeah. Um, we'd actually got a dog and <laughs> our dog was just so part of our family. And we'd had to stop international travel with work because of him, because he'd had a bit of ill health and we couldn't leave him with people anymore. Um, so our world had really altered because of him. And we couldn't ever be out the house for more than so many hours. And, and overnight he became really ill and he, um, we'd taken him to a vet and then said that they didn't think it was hopeful. And then um, we'd taken him to our own vet because we'd been away at the time. And um, our vet said, no, he's all good. Everything's fine, hmm. which was great. Probably three hours later, he had this episode where we thought he was dying. And I remember phoning our vet, he was a friend, and he said, just bring him straight into me. I can't believe anything will have changed that quickly. I saw him this morning, um, but bring him straight in. And we did. And as soon as we got into the veterinary surgery and carried him into the veterinary clinic room, our friend and vet started screaming at us, tell me to put him to sleep because he's going to have a heart attack in front of you. And obviously we said, put him to sleep because we couldn't bear for him to suffer. But I remember walking out thinking, we've now lost everything. We've lost our three children. We've lost our dog. And we'd got each other, which was obviously most important. But we felt stripped bare. We felt like vacant and mm. terrified of the future. And the next morning, we didn't know what to do that night, but the next morning we got in the car and we started to drive and we drove to the top of Scotland, just crying all the way. Mm. And um, when we got to the top of Scotland, Andy went, where do we go now? And I said, I don't know, let's go home because the vet will be ringing to say to collect his ashes. So we turned around and drove the long journey home and we didn't really eat or drink during that whole trip. We were just truly bereft and we were grieving for three children we were grieving for our dog we were grieving for the life that we thought we were going to have but now seemed completely removed from us and almost not possible because yeah. i remember saying i just don't have the strength to face more loss so i just don't think we can ever try again and andy was so amazing and we like whatever you want. If you want to try again, we'll try again. If you don't want to try again, we just won't. We were enough for each other. And that's what we kept reassuring each other and saying, there is no pressure. If this is where our journey stops in trying to have an earthly child, mm. that's where our journey stops. But once we got home within weeks, I started to experience really weird symptoms and and eventually thought, I wonder if I should just do a pregnancy test. And I did do one and could not believe I was pregnant. And um, then we were terrified because I hadn't eaten, hadn't drunk for weeks by this point, hardly at all. We were so broken. And um, I remember going to see our consultant and he said, don't panic. If a baby is meant to survive, it will survive. You won't have done any harm. Don't worry. The baby will have taken all of its reserves from you. And 
We'd made a decision not to try again, but here I was pregnant. It felt like that decision had been taken away from us. And I was so grateful for that mm. because it was the choice of the decision that was so hard. It felt like we needed to be ready to face more loss and more pain. And I didn't think I could ever choose that. Yeah. And it felt like that choice had been taken out of our hands. And I was just so eternally grateful for that, that he knew I couldn't make that decision. So he made it for me. Mm. That was the first baby we got to bring home from the hospital. Mm. That's our daughter, Esme. Amelia Promise is her name. Amen. And she really, truly was our miracle. She was the gift of all gifts. And she brought us so much joy. She still brings us so much joy, obviously. But we thought we'd only have one child and we quickly decided to have more which was such a shock to the whole family because they really believed we would stop at one, especially given our previous experience. But we decided to try again and were really delighted to find out we were expecting again when Esme was around two. And again, all our scans were going beautifully and we were watching our little boy Samuel grow. And on one afternoon, we were all there as a family. Esme was sitting there and we were with the consultant, our friend Chris, and he was scanning me and he just stopped speaking. And um, he said, I don't even know how to tell you, but his mm. heart has stopped beating. And yeah, again, the trap door opened and we fell, but this time we'd got our little two-year-old staring at us going, Mummy, is everything okay? Mm. And I just asked to leave the room for a moment. And I remember going into the bathrooms and just screaming and sliding down the walls going, God, no. How, how are we meant to walk this path yet again? How can I literally have four heavenly children and only one earthly child? How can this be really our story? Can this really be what we're asked to walk through and... It felt, again, all the same things, terrifying, scary. It did feel different. This time we weren't grieving the fact that we'd probably never raise a child. But this time we were so acutely aware of what we'd already got with Esme. And so what we were losing with Samuel, that we could imagine her sitting with him. Mm. She knew we were pregnant. She knew she was having a sibling and... We were going to have to tell her that he died and explain that to a two-year-old. And yeah, it was horrible. And this was the first time I decided to go down the medical route to deliver him. I felt like I couldn't just wait for things to happen naturally. That wouldn't be fair to her. And often you can go down the natural route and still end up in hospital anyway. And, and so I wanted for her sake to not do that. So I went into surgery and he was born and yeah, it felt again, really hopeless. I remember sitting in the bedroom with my sister and he was playing with Esme in the other room and we were trying to keep life as normal as possible for her. And so trying to really grieve separately from her. And I remember my sister going, are you okay? And me saying, I, I'm literally drowning. And I couldn't get my breath. I literally couldn't even take a breath of air because the pain was so bad. 
and and all I could say is I'm drowning and she just didn't know how to help me mm. and it was so hard and and I remember feeling so bad for her because she so wanted to rescue me and she knew she couldn't and I think we often underestimate the role of the supporter and the yeah. handholder, but actually it's a really hard path to walk to be able to sit often in silence because there's no right words to say mm. and watch someone experience that depth of pain yeah. and say, I really appreciated her showing up and, and being willing to sit in like a vigil really um, with us as we grieved and as she came to the hospital with us and was with Esme as I was taken into theatre and um, and that really helped. But the time after was hard. We journeyed through the grieving process and eventually decided we would try again and we're really blessed yet again to discover we were pregnant. And we decided to surprise everybody at a Christmas Eve party that we were expecting. And we broke the news to the family and they were obviously overjoyed. And I then said, hang on, I'm just gonna nip to the loo at the party. And in that loo visit, I found I was bleeding. Oh. And um, we were quickly informed that yet again, we'd gone through loss so that Christmas we were grieving and um, yet again and it wasn't until in the January that I started to get sicker and sicker and eventually I said to Andy I'm, I'm, let's just book a private consultation with a specialist because something's seriously wrong with me I mean I could hardly speak I was so sick and um, it was during that appointment we found out that the doctors had made a mistake and I hadn't lost that baby at all. I was actually pregnant. And um, we quickly then found out that we were actually expecting twins. So we went from bereft to experiencing this miracle that there was two babies that we'd been grieving for a child that had never been lost. But I carried on getting sicker and sicker and something had really gone wrong inside of me and um, they didn't know if I would survive. And tragically, we lost one of the twins and I then had to go on to have two surgeries within a week. And during that time, they said there was going to be nothing they could do to protect the baby. Mm -hmm. But if I didn't have the surgery, I would die so of course, she would also die. And so I had no choice at all but to go for the surgery. And we both pulled through. We both made it through the surgery, which was amazing. But we quickly got told within a couple of weeks, I carried on getting sicker and sicker. And it didn't make any sense because the surgery was meant to have corrected what was wrong. And we were booked in for an emergency scan and we were told that something really rare had happened. And just prior to the surgery, a stone had left my gallbladder, which had then been removed, but it had gone into a bile duct and actually got blocked. And because the gallbladder had then been removed, we were now in a really, really life-threatening situation because 
there was no way of going in to retrieve it because obviously I was expecting I was carrying our daughter and the only way they'd be able to go in was via my spine and it would need to be done under x-ray conditions and they'd need government permission to do that operation Uh because of the radiation and and they basically refused to do it and said it was too dangerous and again me and Andy I remember sitting on a bed both of us sobbing my mum and dad were playing with Esme in another room and us saying so this is it I'm now going to die and our daughter would die in me and we're going to leave our little girl without a mum And it felt, again, hopeless. Mm. And Andy decided he was going to beg the consultant, which he did. He got on the phone and he said, you've got to do this surgery. You have got to save my wife. Imagine if this was your wife. Hmm. And would you not want someone to try and save her? And by the end of the phone call, the consultant had agreed to do the operation and said, I'll do it. He said, we'll need to get all the permissions in place, but I know I'll be able to approve that. But before that happens, I'm going to need to order an urgent MRI so I know exactly where everything is. So when I go in, I know exactly where to head so it can be as safe as possible. And um, we'd already got the scan, obviously, showing where it was, but he wanted this MRI done. So we saw this as a real window of opportunity and my mom started to gather people to pray and all prayer networks she knew, she she contacted and phoned and said, my daughter needs a miracle. We've got 24 hours and this is about saving her life and the baby's life. We need churches to start praying. And people were quickly rallied and started to pray. And the scan was arranged for, I think it was like 8 a.m. the following morning. So we'd got one evening for the miracle to take place in. And um, so all night we were praying and trusting God and calling out for this miracle. And the scan happened and a few, we got then home after the scan and the consultant phoned me from the hospital and said, we have no clue what happened, but some sort of miracle has happened (laughs) because the stone has just vanished. And there's nothing in the bile duct anymore. And it was too big to pass through the duct. There was no way of that happening. We could see from the first scan, but it's just vanished. Um, No surgery is needed. And um, yeah, what a miracle that was. And the rest of the pregnancy wasn't easy, but it was miraculous. And every bad bit of news we got was countered with some soon quickly good news after that. And eventually she was born following a whole other emergency um, (sighs) where I had to be rushed into theatre and to save again my life and her life. Um, But she was born healthily and well. And, um, And that's how we got our two earthly children and mm. five heavenly children wow so i'm pretty exhausted listening to you <laughs> and i yeah. really appreciate this i know there's a real cost emotional cost in mm. in uh, sharing that story so thank you for the gift of your vulnerability and openness with us truly <sighs> So, um, I don't want to be glib. Sometimes people can misquote Romans 8, 28. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him and have been called mm. according to his purpose. So your own personal tragedy was awful. You 
you dug deep, you pressed into your faith, but there's beautiful good that has come out of that, hasn't there? Including, obviously, um, setting up Mariposa Trust. Do you want to talk about that chapter? Yeah, well, just to touch on the first part of what you just stated, I think often as Christians, when you go through a journey like we did, people are quick to say, well, God wouldn't have allowed you to go through it if you weren't strong enough. And mm. well, this is clearly all part of God's plan. And and that Difficult. actually caused me significant yeah, pain yeah, through sure. the walk because I also knew that wasn't true. Mm. God didn't cause our losses. That wasn't in any way part of his plan. We are not created as parents to bury our children. Mm. That all happens because of the fall. That's when sickness and illness came in. This wasn't God's ultimate plan for my life, that I would be really broken. I would then turn it to glorify God in some way. But what I did know to be true was God was grieving with me. Mm -hmm. And all of those times where I felt so alone, the one thing I never doubted was the fact that God knew exactly what I was going through. The ultimate sacrifice for him was to give his son, which showed me he knew the most awfulest of pains was coming from losing a child. And so all through my experience, I just knew no one got it other than him ultimately, because there was no question that he knew the significance of the loss of a child. Mm-hmm. And so I knew it wasn't part of his plan, but I knew he would use it. But I also knew the kindness of God, the fact that he wasn't going to say, well, right, you've journeyed through all this pain. Now you've got to use it for a greater good. Mm-hmm. It's always a choice. And he's a gentle and kind father. And if I hadn't ever wanted to use any of the pain I'd gone through to help others or to glorify him, that was absolutely fine. He would totally get that and would be totally fine with that. Mm. However, I was also aware of the scriptures that he can turn things for good and he can bring beautiful things out of ashes. And for me, I really felt I needed that, that it was a natural part of my story. And once I'd got Bronte, I'd daughter safely in my arms after delivering her, I started to really hold on to God's coattails and Mm. saying, okay, how is this going to be used? There's no way I've gone through all of this without it being used for the good. And this is where all of my past pieces of the jigsaw suddenly started to make sense that I was a trained counsellor, a trained grief specialist, um, but I'd got all this business experience and work on a governmental and business and professional level. And I'd got all of these skills and then all of this personal experience too. And while I was questioning God, I started to have a real sense of all of my past is going to start to make sense in how it's going to be used and I remember saying, but how, what do I need to start? What do we need to do? And just feeling this real call to start some saying goodbye services. And initially they weren't called that. They were called born into heaven services. But we quickly changed that because we realized that what we needed to do was secular. That was something we were definitely being called Mm -hmm. to launch, not something just for those of faith. That Mm. We wanted to be that 
that bridge for people who have got a faith but have not got a faith, for those who blame God and for those who don't even believe there is a God, mm. that we needed to be closest to the brokenhearted, where we could turn to God in our darkest hours. What about the people who don't have that? How do they survive those dark night of the soul moments? Yeah. And realising that we could start this and we'd got all of the skills to do it because of the event experience and PR experience, but then all the counselling experience too. So we decided to launch a set of saying goodbye remembrance services and we decided to hold them at cathedrals because these are beautiful historic venues that people of faith or no faith are happy to go into because they're used for public ceremonial events, royal events. And we felt that that would really showcase to the world that baby loss doesn't need to be a hidden thing and mm -hmm. that these babies deserve to be honoured and remembered. The Guardian newspaper said they would love to do an article on us crossing over from the business world into doing something charitable. And that made things really explode for us. Mm -hmm. And BBC pledged to support us in what we were doing and asked if they could record the first saying goodbye service for Women's Hour. And um, we agreed. And it became overnight this really big organisation that at the time was just run as a not-for-profit division of our company, but we quickly saw that we needed to make it a standalone charity and the company needed to just service the charity rather than yeah. staying as just a, a division of the organisation because we could see what it was really becoming. And within months, our website was having over 650,000 hits a month. And yeah. we realised what we'd launched was something that was so needed yeah. that... There were so many people who were crying alone in their bathrooms and didn't know where to turn and didn't know if it was okay to speak about this pain of loss. And suddenly we were giving people permission to talk mm. and it really quickly escalated and has become what it is today, an organisation with many different divisions, all now under the umbrella of the Mariposa Trust, which means butterfly in Spanish, which symbolises new life and new hope and the acknowledgement of grief and loss and the power of acknowledging the pain and processing the grief. You never get over it. Grief is a lifelong journey. But when you're willing to enter that journey and acknowledge its place in your life, it stops becoming something that always fills the room. Yeah. I always say the fact that initially when you go through loss, it's like you've got this square box and... The pain of the grief fills that room. But over time, your grief muscles just get stronger and stronger. And that expands the room. Yeah. So the loss never gets less. The grief doesn't get less. Um, it's still just as significant, but you grow that room. So eventually, you just are okay with carrying that. And now I so rarely cry about the babies I've lost. I'm just so grateful that I had the honour of carrying them for the time that I did and that they changed my life. I, I honestly feel like I used to see the world in black and white and now I see it in full colour. Mm. They expanded my world and for a long time there, I thought I'd never experience joy or happiness again. I really thought I was just going to be living this sad, miserable life. But I can honestly say that 
I now experience more joy and happiness than I ever did pre-loss. And how I try to explain that is, is that the pain and the loss dug these huge, huge valleys. And for a long time, they were filled with trauma, pain, grief and loss. But over time, those valleys have now been filled with such joy and peace and happiness and hopefulness. And so, yes, I will always carry the grief. Yes, I will always miss my children. I will be forever waiting for the time when we're all reunited. But until that, and until that time, I am just so glad I was given the gift of carrying them at all. Mm. And so grateful to God for journeying so closely to us through the dark night of our soul. Yeah. Oh, Zoe, um, we haven't had time to talk about uh, all the books you've written, the, the involvement of being invited into, by the government into that key role. There's you know, just so much strategic stuff in, in the media you're engaged in. Uh, I don't want to miss out on any key last sort of last thoughts you want to share with us. Yeah, I'd just say to anyone who is grieving or knows someone who's grieving to just submit to the process. I think especially British people, we've got a very stiff upper lip mantra and we're not very good at giving grief the space it needs because Mm -hmm. it is a journey. We always say that you're lucky in England if you get given a six-month pass to be a grieving person and then people expect you to go back to the old you and actually you'll never go back to the old you and Mm. I think if you ask any bereaved person they'll say they don't want to the loss changed them because the love changed them and if we submit to the process we can actually come through the process so much more wholly and so much more knowing who we are, discovering who we are, discovering who God is and discovering what our faith truly means to us. And it's okay to show up broken. We don't need to just show this perfected image to the world. We can show up crying. And if you want to help a bereaved person, give them that space, journey with them, say you know you can't make it better and you don't want to take away the pain because the pain is part of the experience and it's so connected to the love but what you want do want to do is journey with them and just say you just want to hold the tissues and you'll be there for them and it's okay however many times they want to share their story because that's part of the healing Mm -hmm. brains need to keep talking about an experience to process the trauma of it Mm -hmm. and so by giving people that permission and saying you can tell your story over and over again and I'll keep showing up and listening that's such a gift to a bereaved person but don't give them platitudes don't tell them it's just going to get better just tell them they're going to over time learn to carry this and that you're going to help them by journeying with them and that's such a gift to a bereaved person but we can all do our part and sit in that really holy space of grief and just remind them that Grief may feel completely hopeless, but hope is always hidden in a back room. And we don't need it to be a cheerleader. We don't need it to be shouting, I'm here, everything's going to be okay. For a time, it needs to sit there in silence, but it will return. And it will return by us giving space to that grieving process. Mm. 
Well, Zoe Clark-Coates, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for inviting me. It's been such an honour to share with you. And I just hope this story helps anybody who's going through something that's life-changing at the moment, because that's what we need to be doing, sharing our stories, because our stories become the light in people's dark rooms. And that's certainly what helped me in my darkest of hours of knowing other people had gone through this and had survived it. And I needed to know that I would be able to survive it too. Well, God bless you and Andy and your girls. And uh, I know this is the sort of podcast that will resonate deeply with many. Um, I mean, we lost a, a, we had an early miscarriage in Burundi. It was thoroughly unpleasant. Uh, I know lots of people close to me who suffered similarly. So, guys, do pass it on to someone who you know it will help and minister to. Uh, we'll put stuff in the blurb because there's loads of resources that, uh, I mean, yeah. Zoe's written five best-selling books. And uh, we'll put that in the blurb and you can be in touch with her and her ministry ministry mariposa um yeah thank you give us a great review on spotify itunes because it just means that the algorithm will get more people to to listen to it and that'll that'll bless and help and encourage more people i want to thank adam thomas dear for the editing and mike sandman for the mixing next week we'll be back with a very different story every week it's so different it's so edifying in different ways isn't it i hope you leave encouraged inspired challenged stirred on on multiple levels this week but uh, in the meantime have a good one and we'll see you next time toodaloo (laughs) 